Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. My guest today is Rob Leck, Director of Cutter Associates. Rob, welcome. Thanks, Alex. Good to be here. So I thought we'd kick off today with the internalization that a lot of super funds are starting to look into. But before we get into that, maybe if you could give a bit of a a history of your role in the Australian super fund space. Sure thing, mate. Uh, Thanks for that. Uh, So yeah, Director of Consulting at Cutter, as you've already mentioned, um, in my previous life, though, I've been a uh, portfolio manager a quantitative analyst, uh, someone who's managed uh, teams of quantitative people. And like uh, a lot of people in the industry, I started in the back office. So I have a little bit of an operational pedigree and then moved into the quantitative space uh, when I was in treasury management at the Queensland Treasury Corporation. From there, I went into um, Vanguard Investments in Melbourne uh, to do an investment risk role. So I've picked up a lot of uh, risk, operational, quantitative and systems things through that. Uh, My two previous roles were um, at CBUS, where I looked after the fixed income asset class and the quantitative team. So I did a lot of portfolio management and construction there, manager research, but also managing the quant team, looking at systems and tools. And then at QSuper, I had a much broader role as a senior portfolio manager for quantitative solutions, looking across the various public market asset class, a bit on portfolio construction, but also making sure um, the systems, tools, data, everything like that was fit for purpose for the investment decision making. So as I mentioned at the very start, this conversation is going to be about an internalization. And we've started to see a large number of the super funds either on the journey or about to start. Maybe if you can sort of set out what are key areas that a fund needs to consider? Sure thing. Uh, basically, it comes down to really you start with the articulation of the benefit, and that's normally a discussion between the board and the investment committee and uh, the chief investment officer and whatever investment team already exists in the organisation. Really, it breaks down to you need to look at the people, the processes, the technology and the governance. And I suggest you do that holistically to make sure that you're not just setting up a front office project, but you're looking at a fund-wide project that takes all of those components into account to be successful. You also want to make sure that everybody across the fund is aligned to the success of the project. Let's talk a little bit more specifically around the fees part, right? Because Mm. I think that a large number of the funds that have been thinking about internalization, fees are the primary objective. They see the high fees they're paying and that becomes their, their key goal. How do you put that fee context alongside all the other additional risks that you've mentioned, which is the people, process, technology? All these areas have costs. They've Mm. all got risks associated with them. So how do you balance those out? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, that's that's kind of the crux of the issue is that there are potentially um, some low-hanging fruit, things that are much easier to do from a fee perspective, but you still have to bear in mind all the costs that are associated with bringing those things in. So when you talk about the fees, I mean, you pay, obviously, a significant amount of basis points out to the various external managers, whether that's active or passive or quantitative in the equity space. And that seems to be an area where a lot of funds have focused in the past on bringing those in. So you want to make sure that you can actually articulate to the board, well, if we bring in this portion of our assets, be it equities, cash, fixed income, some other asset class, what are we actually hoping to do? And are we expecting to get the same level of performance? 
and just save the kind of fees that we're paying out to the external manager. Now, it's not a complete saving because obviously there's a number of costs associated with doing that correctly. You need staff members in the investment team, sure, but you also need staff in the operational area, staff in the middle office to risk the performance areas and the systems. So you can actually get quite a lot of fee savings, sure, but you need to make sure you're doing it in a way that's quite comfortable from an operational risk perspective with the board as well. What is the importance of the board being on on the right page alongside the investment committee with the CIO Mm -hmm. and maybe even a chief risk officer? It's, it's, it's a good one. I mean, with the board being the trustees, so they're, they're the actual ones responsible for the actual membership outcomes in a way. And so it's important that they're involved with the initial discussion, but it's important that they're given the, they can see the accountability of the investment committee and also the internal investment people who'll be doing this sort of work there. So you want to make sure that they're on board with risks that are going to be taken and they're also on board with the sort of resources that are going to be needed because I'm pretty sure they're going to be on board with the savings that you're trying to generate from doing this sort of thing. I think it's important too that in an organisation where potentially a chief risk officer doesn't exist or or one's more looking at enterprise-wide risk rather than investment risk, that they're brought along for the journey as well or that somebody goes into that role to look at investment risk. And ideally that person reports to the board because they're not giving an independent view of how the actual internalization project is going and how the investment team is actually performing. I'm curious on, on your thoughts around sort of the CIO and, and the chief risk officer mm. in terms mm. of their particular need for understanding about the complexity and the operational risk as you actually are trading in-house as opposed to historically where these things are outsourced as a mandate. Yeah, it's a good one. I mean, the, the chief investment officer obviously has – Uh, the need for a bit of a delegation from the investment committee or the board to be able to do these sorts of things. So the complexity and the delegation kind of go hand in hand. The more you bring in-house, the more risk you're taking on, the more the delegation structure needs to be quite uh, well-defined and quite fit for purpose to do those sort of things. So the CIO not only is accountable to the investment committee and the board, but they also the, the leader of the internal investment team, the the heads of, the senior portfolio managers, that sort of thing. When you contrast that to the chief risk officer, that's somebody who looks at what the investment team is doing via a risk lens. So somebody who says, well, yeah, we've got additional operational risk now because we have systems that we have to do this trading. We have trades that need to be done. We have trades that need to be matched and settled and the like, but also that we're not fundamentally changing the sort of risks that the business is actually able to bear when they set up, say, the charter or or the trustee deed or whatever it happens to be. Are we still doing things completely in line with the intention of that document or that charter? The next thing that I think comes to mind around this transformation is the operating model and Mm. what is the correct target operating model that a fund needs to use as they think about internalization? It's a good question. It's kind of one of those things that it's not one size fits all. So the target operating model does does look at basically, well, what are we actually bringing in-house? So if we start from the beginning, what do we currently do internally? But then what do we want to do internally? And saying, okay, well, if we want to bring a certain proportion of our investment management in-house, we need to have a certain proportion of, um, you know, budget dedicated to that component. We need to have resources in there from an an operating model perspective doing the various roles. And it's not just portfolio management, trading and execution. 
It's the it's the settlements, it's the performance and the risk that we've talked about before. And the important thing to understand is that there's a fully outsourced model. There's a fully insourced model with significant resources, but everybody is going to be, well, nearly everybody's going to be somewhere in a hybrid, somewhere between those two things. So do I, do I have the right number of people looking at the right sorts of things such that the investment process from an end-to-end perspective is ready to go, is fit for purpose and is something that will add value through time? You mentioned there about something that will add value specifically. Mm. Is there a particular mm. area that you would look at or maybe advise funds to look at first to bring in-house? Well, I mean, it's really up to the fund where they, where they feel they can see it. So some some funds have uh, looked at the equities asset class, public equities asset class uh, first, which makes which makes a lot of sense. So sometimes that will be bringing in uh, very high conviction um, kind of highly concentrated portfolios in the equity space, maybe 20 to 30 stocks out of a 200 stock universe, that sort of thing. And that requires a certain discipline, sure, but also a certain tool set. Whereas if you're thinking of bringing, say, the cash portfolio in, you can do that if it's a very vanilla cash portfolio in the same sort of vein as, as that high concentration equity portfolio. A few little bits and pieces to get you started and systems that are fairly fit for purpose. If you want to actually extend that further and start to bring in, say, indexed equities, indexed uh, fixed income, particularly in the credit space, where there's a lot of, I guess, more security level stuff to, to think about, you need to have more sophisticated tools that are going to handle those sorts of volumes of trades and uh, things you need to do, you're going to need to have algorithms to look at your stratified sampling versus the full replication that you might want to do with an index. And you're going to have more challenges in that space as well. I mean, some other funds will look at their private markets and look to do some of those things internally as well. And that has additional challenges different that are different to the public markets. So, it's not, a, it's not a case if I can say there's always one transition pathway that makes a lot of sense for funds. Funds will have to determine that themselves, but some funds have started with private, some funds have started with public equity, some funds have started with cash or fixed income. It really depends on where you see the best value add and where you feel as though you'll get your best bang for your buck by bringing those people internally. And the ability to actually find those people um, yeah. that can, that can uh, help build out that strategy for you. So that's a that's another challenge to, to add to the mix. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it's it's one thing to hire very talented portfolio managers, and and that's an important part of bringing um bringing investments in house. But it's also important to look for talented risk people talented performance analysts, talented operations people, talented settlements people. So that you've got talented people across the whole end-to-end part of the investment process. Let's talk more about the custodian in their role mm. and, and how their role maybe changes in this whole uh, evolution. Yeah, sure. I mean, in, in a lot of funds, the custodian is doing a lot of work on their behalf. So it's doing the record keeping with the accounting and uh, potentially investment book of records. It's doing some of the uh, performance calculations, potentially some of the risk calculations. And so if you start to bring some of the assets internally, you're actually required to then do some of that work that the custodian would have previously done for you internally as well. So you'll need to look at making sure your record-keeping systems internally can take that accounting book of records and bring it in. You'll need to look at performing some of the performance calculations yourself. You need to look at doing some of the risk calculations yourself if the custodian was doing it. So when a custodian starts with what's a fully externalised asset management kind of approach that Superfund has... That may only be looking at, say, uh, units in a unit trust and providing a daily return on those. 
when you start to have an internal team um, buying securities or you start to have look through into the vehicles, that requires significantly more data, but also significantly more performance calculations and risk calculations at more granular levels. So, you know, things that you could previously, I guess we used to call it chuck over the wall and get the custodian to do, you're now going to have to have internal specialists who are able to do that and, and potentially systems to be able to enable them to do that as well. So when you're a custodian and, and you kind of come, or when you decide that you're going to do this sort of internalization process, the, the relationship with the custodian does fundamentally need to change, but it's something that can change to for the better. It doesn't have to be a severing of the relationship. In fact, it can just be enriching it. And you mentioned quite a bit there about the data capabilities mm. that the fund needs to do. Mm-hmm. Is there a lot of pressure on the fund in terms of its ability to create its own data management systems? How does it also then think about the security or cyber security risk alongside yep. that data? I haven't heard a conversation around that piece. It's an important piece, Alex. It's a, it's a good question. I mean, yes, data data is a strategic asset. I mean, people are starting to come around to that view and the systems that basically ingest your data, transform, enrich, and then publish your data are, are really vital to the organisation running well. I mean, the cybersecurity thing is not an area that I'm an expert in. That's uh, more of a corporate IT sort of thing. But it, that's that's vitally important that if your record book is internal and you trust that to actually position your portfolios and trade off, you actually have that as the most important asset within your organisation from an investment perspective because every single position that you move from that book, if that's inaccurate, will take you in directions you do not want to go. So I think people are getting around to the understanding that data isn't just about collecting everything and lumping it into this enormous data lake or warehouse. It's about structuring things in a way that actually makes sense for the decision-making that you want to do and making sure that those areas are equally well-resourced and uh, partners with the business. So you want those people to understand a bit about the investment process as well as the data and as well as the data systems that they've got there. It's also about making the systems really fit for purpose Mm. um, for for the whole structure of of the team and what's internalised and what the objective of the fund is yeah that's that's a good point it, it certainly is i mean the systems themselves and, and that's one thing there's no there's no one system fits every single situation or, or every size organization and, and there'll be sometimes it'll be a corporate wide solution that's that does a big portion of the end-to-end processing and sometimes across the end-to-end process that we best to breed systems that do a very specific uh, not silo but very specific part of the process and it's important to have an IT kind of area or understanding that can plumb those systems together effectively so that you're actually getting the, the inputs and outputs talking to each other a language both of them understand and in a way that actually fits how that data is then going to be used by the ultimate decision makers in the portfolio management areas. Do the actual funds then need to be able to sort of develop these systems in-house or are there a lot of platforms and, and packages that they can sort of buy off the shelf that they can then apply to their funds? It's a good question. Most most things are, are off off the shelf or customised within the organisation. That's that's generally what we see. You could build some of this capability in house. That requires obviously uh, quantitative or system software developers and the like. And that's a that's a completely different discussion. But but broadly, most people are looking for very bespoke or, or very systems that are focused on how they how they go about doing their investment management bringing those in and, and manning that with experts that can actually add a lot of value in the kind of life cycle of the investment process. 
one of the reasons I, I asked the question is that there are a number of funds that have a lot of legacy programs and legacy mm. investments that are there and the legacy systems. And so how do they now move into this new world of internalization when they've got all these legacy systems that are that are still hanging around? Yeah, look, that's a, that's a big issue. I mean, basically, a lot of the legacy stuff was probably fit for purpose when it was put in, whenever that happened to be. And it's not saying that there's no value there, but technology moves on at a rapid pace. And so there are legacy systems that you may need to um, rip out entirely. There are legacy systems that you may need to document and build into the functionality that you might be looking to build or customise internally. And with, with legacy systems come significant risks, particularly when the people who've built those systems, maintain those systems and the like have potentially moved on to other things or, or the, uh, the coding language becomes not obsolete but superseded by more more effective technologies and the like. So it's, it's an important thing and that's where I guess it comes down to partnering with somebody from the vendor space or in the consulting space who really understands your business and making sure that you have an independent review of those things. You don't just do things because they're the thing, they're the way things have always been done. And you don't just do things because it's easy to do the thing we're currently doing, but you have a bit of a finger on the pulse of what the best way to do things is and making sure that you're moving towards the kind of best way of doing things. You mentioned a little bit there about the role of consultants. Mm. Obviously, as you start to internalize uh, parts of the portfolio, your role or your relationship with the asset consultant mm. would change. Can you give a yes. bit more context on, on how that may happen? Yeah, it's a good, it's, it's a good question. I mean, it's, it's something that really, I mean, it, it doesn't have to change in some instances and does significantly in others. So if you're bringing in a portfolio management capability where you don't have any, say, external managers in, in that space, so bringing in a new asset class or, or a subset of an asset class that you weren't investing in, there's probably going to be just as much requirement for your asset consultant to provide the services they normally do, um, reviewing your external managers and providing an independent view of the investment program to the investment committee and the board. If you start to bring in uh, internal resources that are taking money from external managers, then the question will be, do you need your asset consultant to actually review um, how your internal investment team's going in those spaces as much as they review any external manager? And then you might have the difficulty where once an internal team is established, they may have a view on an external manager that was put in place previously as an incumbent manager. And where the asset consultant and the internal investment team have a different view potentially on that external manager, how, how do you resolve that potential conflict and how do you make sure that your internal team or your asset consultant isn't dictating things, but it's a mutually kind of beneficial relationship where you're getting the best out of each kind of each of the each of the sides of the argument it becomes a really tricky conversation to have in some cases because you may be actually taking money off internal teams that's true it's um, it's very hard to fire people you work with every day i'm sure compared to when you have to terminate an investment mandate you have with an external manager i mean that's that's something that may come up and it probably will come up in in the future as these internal teams get bigger and they do more of the asset classes it's something that you may also find is that in your original plan, you decided to bring in all of the asset classes and all of the subsectors of those asset classes. And after a little while of running it, the asset consultant can have a bit of a review of that and say, well, you know what, a certain portion of the investments you're bringing in is, is not working out how you anticipated and the cost savings aren't potentially there or the, the you're not extracting the value that you thought you were and you may be better going back out to an external manager for that sort of thing. So it's an ongoing journey and it's an ongoing discussion where you're leaning on the expertise of the asset consultant as much as you are of your internal experts. 
Look, it's an interesting question for the board, particularly and the investment committee, mm. as they start to review because they need this external validation of what's been going on. And I guess that's another piece to the whole measuring success after it's been implemented. And how do you also determine the success of, of these sorts of transitions? Yeah, well, that's that's a good question too, because you have presumably a strategic long-term plan to internalise. It's not something you do on a whim. It's it's not something you do because it's, because it's necessarily easy, but it's something that as you go on the journey, and maybe it's a five or 10 year one, as we said before, at year three, you've done some of the work to bring the asset management function in-house. And you've probably learned a lot over that, those three years. You've probably found things that have gone better than planned. You've found things that have gone more you know, worse than planned. But you've also got learnings along the way that you need to incorporate as you bring in the next two years or the next seven years of the plan, depending on how, how long you've kind of planned for. You may also find that problems that have cropped up earlier will actually solve some problems you may have in the future with bringing additional parts of, of the plan on board. So you might actually realise we didn't plan to have enough risk people in our team. So we went out and hired additional risk people quicker than the plan, but this is going to help us with the second, third and fourth phases as we go through the plan to implement other parts of the internalisation. You sort of mentioned that in terms of this long-term plan, but how, do you, mm. how does it actually a fund make sure that what they've actually put in place, whether it's the systems, the processes, mm. or the operating model is still fit for purpose? It, it, it requires a regular review. It's, it's, a good, it's a good point. It requires um, kind of an independent check of what you're trying to achieve because strategically, this makes a lot of sense for a lot of funds to bring a portion of their investment team in-house on, on the fee savings, on being closer to the investments. You know, very, very good things. But you need to make sure that the, the pace you're doing the internalization, that the systems you've put in that were potentially fit for purpose for a few a few subsets of asset classes here and there are now fit for purpose as you bring in the entire kind of equities book or the entire fixed income book and the like. And that that once again comes down to the ability to to lever external resources who are independent of the process and making sure that perhaps the operating model that I thought would be the most appropriate one three years down the track, now that I review it, I actually realise that I need more of X, Y, or Z, whatever that happens to be. And so learning as you go is just as important as making sure you had the right kind of objective to start with. And that's something that someone independent, whether it's an asset consultant, some other investment consultant, that sort of thing can help out. Or even just if you've got an internal auditing or internal risk function, they may be able to look at that as well. One of the things that keeps coming to mind as as I think about these funds internalising is when something goes wrong, the mm. risk or the costs go directly to the fund. In the mm. case when you're delegating a, a mandate to a fund manager, if something goes wrong, they, they wear the bill. And so mm. I wonder how do you really make sure or, or balance out that risk transfer now that, that the fund actually has to take on board? Operational risk is one of those things where you're never, you're never compensated for it in, in a way. You you always are bearing that risk. So you need to minimise it or bring it down to a level where, you, where you're comfortable with that sort of thing. Basically, it's, it's kind of specific to the circumstances. So you want to make sure that the asset classes you're bringing in, you have a really good understanding of what you are actually taking on from a risk perspective. So if I'm bringing passive equities into an in-house managed fund, for example, what would I be getting from some of the top passive providers out there in the market? So your Vanguards, your State Streets, your Black Rocks, et cetera. And can I actually do what they do more efficiently by myself? 
can I do it in a, a cheaper version myself? And can I do it with pretty good understanding of the operational risks that I'm taking on board? So you need to have that pretty honest conversation with yourself and that some things external managers are just going to be able to deliver better outcomes than internal managers until a certain size or a certain scale or a certain corporate-wide system actually exists to manage that risk correctly or, or dedicated teams to have a look at that risk. Is that why we've maybe seen a couple of uh, funds, funders in the manager and a First State yeah. Super and HSBC had done a deal around systematic equities that they were working mm. with each other to try and get mm. it was a systematized uh, equity approach that they were looking to work mm. on? Is that sort of maybe one of the transitions that funds can learn from? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you definitely can learn a, an absolute ton from external managers. And I certainly learn a lot from them uh, when I go and visit them wherever they're located in the world. I mean, these are people who've been doing this sort of work for you know quite likely a long period of time. They're people with very deep research and quantitative and uh, those sort of resources. So the ability to potentially partner with one or two of them to deliver a kind of a hybrid in- internal-external solution makes a lot of sense where you can have a look at... Uh, say, some internal resources getting up to speed on what an external investment manager is doing and potentially looking at parts of that that you can do internally or parts of that you can partner to do make, make a lot of sense. And it, it stops you from having to bring in um, a significant number of resources to potentially try and almost replicate what somebody externally is doing as well. But by being involved in the conversation, you can make it more of a tailored investment towards what you're actually trying to achieve from an objective perspective as well. So it's 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 not a bad not a bad way to go as part of the internalization journey. And it may end up that you're very comfortable once you're in that partnership and don't have to actually bring entire investment management component in house as well. Let's go back to sort of where we started in terms mm-hmm. of the board mm-hmm. and the investment committee and the CIO. One of the things that is interesting is that historically the the super funds have been an all outsource model and a lot of the CIOs that have been coming through have been coming either via a management consultant or asset Mm -hmm. consultant space and so Mm -hmm. forth. Do we need to sort of rethink who is actually on top of of these organizations in terms of the risks that they need to be considerate of, the the structure and style? Because there's now a lot more risks are coming much closer and coming in-house obviously quite substantially Mm -hmm. in this transformation. Yeah, you know, I'm not sure it needs a wholesale, wholesale really think. Um, a lot of the chief investment officers I know are, are very skilled, very technical, highly competent people in there. And yes, the the internalization component has moved beyond, as you suggested, the management consultant and asset consultant, but they definitely have a very good grasp of how a lot of the funds are set up and, and that sort of thing. And as, as a chief investment officer, you're, you're first and foremost an investment person, but you're also a significant leader in the business as well. And so potentially, as you bring more and more staff in, those leadership qualities need to be amplified for the people in there, or you need to bring in you know, people below the chief investment officer who have those specific leadership skills to potentially deputise for them, or you may find them in heads of asset classes or heads of asset allocation. I don't think it's a fundamental change, but I think it definitely opens up a much broader kind of environment for chief investment officers to be sourced from in the future, which can only be a good thing. One thing we, we didn't talk about is a number of these asset owners are moving internationally. Some are mm. actually setting up offices in the US and in Europe. How does that change in terms of the, the risks and structures and systems that you need to set up as you internalize? That's a tough one. I mean, that's something that even the largest asset managers will probably struggle with when they you know start moving to a 24-7 follow the sun sort of trading model. So you need system connectivity across multiple sites to make sure people are all looking at the same instance in the portfolio. 
you need to make sure culturally, I mean, this is a big one, culturally that the people who are in a different location to the headquarters are still equally viewed as part of the team and feel as connected as um, other people who might be working in the, the headquarters in, say, Melbourne or Sydney, for example. And you, you need to make sure, I guess, that the operating model is flexible enough to account for bits of the end-to-end tasks being done in different offices across the globe. So there's there's a fair bit of work there and there's certainly... Um, it's certainly an ongoing process as people get bigger. They're going to have a look at trading during different hours outside of the Australian market and whether that means a London or a New York office or something or Hong Kong or something along those lines, you definitely need to make sure that you're changing your operating model in line with the change that you're, changes that you're kind of requiring from the people doing those roles as well. You mentioned the risk quite a bit there and, and also culture. How important is it that the funds almost embed the right sort of risk culture uh, along across the whole organisation? Oh, it's massively important. I mean, the risk culture and the ability to speak up when you see risks going on in areas that you're, say, familiar with or employed in is, is massive. I mean, that's that's one thing that's definitely been encouraged at places that I've worked previously and certainly something that it needs to be embedded from uh, the top down to the very, you know, the very most junior graduate or analyst coming in. And um, in the end, you're managing the life savings or, or the, the superannuation savings on behalf of thousands or potentially hundreds of thousands of, of, of members. So that risk culture is is vitally important and something that should definitely be considered as part of the organisation's culture, not just a risk thing, but that's how we do things around here. For any asset owner that's listening to this conversation, what's probably the most important part for them to sort of kick off as they start this journey? I think it comes back to the start when we said that even though a lot of the benefits will be because of front office people coming into the organisation, don't ever treat it as purely a front office project because the ramifications and and the importance of having other parts of the investment or the end-to-end investment process involved up front will pay significant dividends as you get operations people and middle office and performance and risk people also involved in the discussion early on that's going to make a much more successful and a much more aligned uh, project when you when you get to actually do it. Thank you very much for your time today, Rob. Thanks, Alex. Appreciate it. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.